This is Tony Bizella, head women's basketball coach at Seton Hall University, and you're listening to West Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to Left Coast Pirates. As of this recording, we are less than seven days away from the season opener, and we are excited. Mikey, how are you today? Good morning, Tommy. I I give up, man. I don't know what you want. Do you want me to kind of come on this podcast and give you my Robin Williams you know, good morning Vietnam intro. I, I just don't have that level of energy that you bring to the table to start the top of every show. It's just, it's not going to happen. You're going to get my Eeyore on like 90% of the days when we kick this thing off. It's, it just is what it is, man. The coffee well, hasn't kicked in yet. The season hasn't kicked in yet. Well, Tell me they're tipping up the ball next Friday at the Yum Center and, and, I, and I'm all in, Tommy, but, but we're not there yet. Mike, your poor wife, she has to wake up in the morning and see that face and then hear those complaints, man. I don't know how she does it. Mike, we've got lots of things to talk about today. It was a busy week. No games, but we still have lots to talk about. We're going to talk about all those national letter of intent signings that we had earlier this week. There was the NBA draft and we've got news from there. Of course, we got to bring it down a little bit, talk about some COVID updates, but then we can talk about the potential first two games. And, Mike, when's the last time you saw a pair of games like this to start off a Seton Hall season? We've got Louisville and we've got Baylor. And, man, that's a heck of a start to a season. That's probably the, the toughest opening game for the Pirates to start a season going all the way back to the first year of Kevin Willard's tenure when he played at Temple. Put that into context. That's when Temple was a good team. That, that's when Bobby Gonzalez put Temple to start the schedule, and Kevin <laughs> had no choice but to kind of fill in the gaps after what he was handed. And Bobby thought he was going to have one heck of a senior uh, team coming back with Hazel, uh, Pope, Theodore, Harvey, all those seniors coming back that year. So, you know, Kevin was just dealt a tough hand. I know he likes to kind of warm up with a couple games, but we are jumping into the deep end to start this season. Well, Mike, my goal today is to keep you excited, keep you in a good mood. So let's talk about the National Letter of Intent signings that we had earlier this week. You should be excited. Not me. You should be excited. They, the ink is dry. They've signed on the dotted line. They can't back out and change their mind now, Tommy. You got all three guys with all the hype that they've been talking about. They are officially coming. No more ifs and buts and cherries and nuts you know they're coming to the they're coming to the hall now. You got Conway, you got Powell, you got Brandon Weston, and the reality is 
we really haven't talked that much about Brandon Weston and how, in my opinion, it possibly puts this class over the top. So, so I'll throw this back to you. Are we talking about this class enough in terms of its success? We did have a special recruiting podcast earlier this year. But yes, this we recorded that before Brandon Weston gave his verbal. And yeah, I think we should talk about this. I mean, this is the best class since that heralded Isaiah Whitehead class. And and you know what? It's about time because you know what? We really need to reload with this class. So let's talk a little bit of Brandon Weston. Currently, he's ranked 78th on the ESPN poll. He's 81st on Rivals. 24-7, got him 70. So he's in that he's in that bottom half of the top hundred. Come on, Tommy. Tell me about his highlight videos. I am. Tell me about Brian. Come on. He's got really good form on that foul shot, Mike. Okay. Have you seen him play above the rim in like all of his highlight videos? He's not going up with a little lay in. He's not just hitting a wide open three. He's hitting pull up jump shots off the dribble. He's actually playing elite basketball above the rim for a guy his size. It's. I'm going to keep on saying it's it's impressive. I know it's a highlight video, but it's impressive. Mike, you would have been one of those guys back in Midnight Madness in 1992 when the guys are coming out doing layups and then Craig Dirksen throws down a dunk and the crowd goes crazy. I think that was Craig Dirksen's big highlight for the year. I'm going to say that I've involved in my highlight video watching from high school ballers over the years. I'll, I'll give you an example here. When, when Bobby Gonzalez first recruited Brandon Walters, he was uh, getting passes uh, from, from one of his teammates and just rim rocking dunks. And I'm like, wow, we got Brandon Walters coming in. And then I realized on every one of his highlight dunks, the uh, point guard had basically drawn the entire defense to himself that Walters was just doing a drop step dunk uncontested. Nobody challenging him. And when he got to Seton Hall, I was just like, oh, oh, that, that was his ceiling. Unless he got an uncontested dunk with nobody on him, he didn't have any other game. You're seeing Wesson drive through the lane, juke defenders. And then there's a moment where you're like, okay, he's going to go up for a layup. And then he elevates over two defenders and everything is like a facial out of nowhere. On the highlight videos, you hear the crowd just going, ooh, like, where did that come from? <laughs> I'm sorry, Tommy, there's a little more excitement here for the dunks I'm seeing on these highlight videos for a top 100 recruit than, unfortunately, what I saw with Brandon Walters back in the day. Let, let's just be fair. Well, good. I'm glad you're excited from the highlight video. But you know what I'm excited about? The entirety of this recruiting class has been ranked 36 nationally. When's the last time we were that high from a recruiting class standpoint, Mike? No, it, it's in the mix. We, we talked about it uh, on a previous podcast saying that this recruiting hall kind of needs to be the standard, right? I, I'm surprised that you kind of glossed over the fact that in this class, once again, Ryan Conway is another true point guard. We've talked about Ryan Conway. I'm not going to repeat myself. Of course, I'm excited. A real point guard coming in to play the game. This is a big right. deal for us. Now you have two. You got your Hari Log and you got Ryan Conway. What a concept. If one guy gets hurt, the other guy can step up. Maybe they can both play on the court at the same time. Wow. But, Mike, let's talk about the recruiting class and the context of how it stacks up with other Big East teams. So fine, fine. Make, make me be Eeyore now. Let, let me tell you that 36 is just, it's good, and it's where it should be, but it's kind of right now middle of the pack for the Big East. 
But right? Mike, what a heck of a recruiting year for the Big East itself, man. I mean, we've got it, and I know you want to do this. I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit. Villanova's got the seventh rank. DePaul, 12th. UConn, 14th. Georgetown, 31st. Now, let's see Pat Ewing actually keep his recruits this year, but whatever. Creighton at 37th. Marquette at 53rd. Butler, 55th. Tied with St. John's. That's a huge pull for the entire for, Sure, but, but my response is, if you don't make that poll, if you don't come in at 36 and you got five schools ahead of you in the national rankings and you have the other half of the conference right behind you in that grouping and you don't land this heralded class, you're in the bottom third of the Big East in recruiting. And ultimately, that's probably going to translate down the road to being in the bottom third of the standings because talent is ultimately going to win out on the court. So I, like I said, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here but they needed to hit this recruiting class to keep up with the Joneses. You want to be a top 25 team in the country. You got to start landing top 25 recruiting classes, don't you? Oh, absolutely. But you know what? You couple this with Kevin Willard's sustained success of bringing in transfers and maybe it bumps it up a little bit. Okay. I, I, I could play along, but I, I'm still going to challenge you that they still have a scholarship or so remaining, if I'm not mistaken, where is the big guy in this recruiting class to kind of put a bow on it all. They kept, they missed out on a bunch of big guys and they missed out on Sonogo the year before. And then Gandu is stuck in Canada with visa issues with the whole coronavirus. So where is the big guy that's going to basically, you know, make this class complete? I know they have Trey Jackson from Missouri as a sit out transfer for next year, but Trey is more of a, once again, athletic stretch four type guy. Where's that bruiser who's going to be under the glass grabbing the boards next year and you know, beyond. You know, normally I'd like to tell you, you're just being your usual grumpy self screaming at the sky, but you're not wrong. We've actually been swinging and missing on a lot of these bigs. And before people start pointing out at like Roe being a Juco transfer and developing into a big East defensive player of the year and the most improved player, you know what? For every one row we've developed and we could squeeze everything we can out of them, what has happened to development of guys like Miles Carter, Darnell Brody, Rashid Anthony? You know, we could keep going with these big guys. So, so humor me, Tom. When was the last time or the only time in Willard's tenure, now going on 11 years, that he has landed a top 100 high school recruit in the front court? You're usually the walking encyclopedia about this, but this one's easy because we just had Angel Delgado, who was a top 50 recruit, if I'm not mistaken. And and that's the only one that comes to mind. Good, good. Stop right there because you're done. That's it. We got Angel Delgado <laughs> at 42. That, that's been 10 years. And it should be more challenging of a trivia question. It just should. You, you got to put more guys on that list. So I'm, I think fans are excited with this last class. I, I'm excited for this next class. I mean, don't get me wrong. All three names have high upside. They're good program guys. I, I like how their game is uh, kind of already constructed. I want to see who that big guy is. I'm, but maybe that's just not going to be the direction we ultimately go on a consistent basis. Starting next year in January, you're going to have a new NCAA rule change that allows for transfers to immediately be eligible one time in their career when they transfer. So 
we have had better success dipping into that transfer pool to get guys in the front court. You can pick on the Brady and Andersons all you want, but you know, a guy like Eugene Teague and Herb Pope, they have actually filled, you know, quality roles for us, you know, in that power forward category. And maybe that's what you need. You need that upperclassman transfer, the guy ending to his junior year, a little more polished, doesn't need as much development, you know, and they can kind of immediately come in and play a starting role. So maybe that's what Seton Hall does going forward is they continue to tap the transfer eligibility pool now that the rules have changed to have immediate impact in their lack of recruiting for the front court. But I still want the big, I want the big dog. I want that guy that's going to, you know, get the excitement of we're getting the, you know, the number one big guy in the class. I know we're not getting the number one big guy, but give me that. Give me that diamond, not the diamond in the rough. Give me the diamond. <laughs> but Mikey, let's go back to that point that you made. This is a really good class. And hopefully this is a trend in the right direction, not necessarily a blip. Let's see if we can keep building on these big names and keep bringing the talent into South Orange. I would agree. You know what? Maybe we flip the script on Nova. Nova's getting all the Jersey kids to come to, to Pennsylvania. Why don't we get the Philly kids to come to New Jersey? And you know, you bring the talent into South Orange. Maybe that talent translates into the NBA, Mike. Well, Nova's doing that. Didn't you see the big graphic at the NBA draft where in the last three years, they've had six players drafted in the first or second round. That is part of one of the things that Paul, Pat Lawless mentioned on the front office interview is guys want playing time and guys want the opportunity to move, advance their career to the next level at the NBA. So this was a big draft for Seton Hall fans because they wanted to see if guys like Romaro Gill and ultimately Miles Powell got our name up on the big board this year. So let's, let's talk about the NBA draft. Let's talk about how Seton Hall did. Let's talk about how the big East did. I'll, I'll start with kind of giving you a little recap as to how the overall big East played out. I think they kind of underperformed in, in expectations of what the fans thought could have been based on some of the talent that left for the draft this year or, or graduated and were eligible. You had Sadiq Bey out of Villanova, the highest guy off the board at 19th in the first round. The only other player drafted out of the Big East was Paul Reed at the back end of the second round at 58th. And then guys like Marcus Howard, Tyshawn Alexander, Najee Marshall, Miles Powell, they all go undrafted. Howard, Alexander, and Marshall all pick up two-way contracts. And then Romaro Gill and Miles Powell immediately pick up Exhibit 10 deals with the Jazz and the Knicks, respectively. So, Tom, I'll, 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 I'll let you handle Gil, and then we'll go from there. Now, before we go on, you know, this Exhibit 10 deal, this is a new, this is new terminology. I, I don't remember it in previous years actually being brought up. Let's talk about what the heck an Exhibit 10 contract is anyway. It's part of the new collective bargaining agreement. It is a one-year deal worth the minimum salary. They don't come with any compensation protection but they can include an optional bonus ranging from $5,000 to $50,000. Basically, it allows the team to expand its roster from 15 to 20 during the offseason, and it creates auditions for a place on the regular season roster or a spot on the team's G League affiliate. So, Romaro Gill scores one with the Utah Jazz. Now, I'm not happy with him going all the way out to Utah. Seton Hall centers do not have a good history going out to Utah. Don't but Mike, go there. Did you just pick on Luther Wright? Did I'm you just pick on Luther, Luther Wright? I'm picking on the Utah Jazz structure, man. You're not going out to Utah, man. That is a whole different world. Anyhow, 
do you think Utah is a good spot for Gildo? Uh, you know what? It's it's an interesting. I got two sides of the coin here. I like the fact that he gets a chance to kind of be an understudy against or with more of a traditional five in Rudy Gobert. Here is a player who's known for being an all NBA level defender. The Jazz don't really play a lot of small ball. And what do I mean by that is they actually let their five man play in the paint. You know, they're not playing five out. They're not having Rudy Gobert shoot three-pointers. You mean, you know, they have guys that can stretch the floor. But, I mean, I think it was even Paul Millsap was on their roster last year. He's not really your traditional stretch four, even though he likes to probably shoot when he shouldn't be. But the point is, they developed their bigs to kind of play more traditionally in the paint. But then they also drafted a guy who plays exactly that same style. And fans should be familiar with this name. Out of Kansas, Yudoka Azubuki got drafted in the first round by the Jazz, and he's exactly the same player as Roe Gill. Now, I'm not saying that Roe is any less the player as, you know, uh, Azabuki, but when you invest a draft pick on a player versus a player that you're giving essentially the Exhibit 10 contract, there's going to be more, you know, eggs in the basket of investing in the development of that player. So now you end up with three traditional centers potentially on the roster, and I just don't know in today's day and age if an NBA team is going to carry three guys on their active 15 man roster, could Gil get an opportunity to go to the G league affiliate and then develop? Sure. And if Ozabuki doesn't work out or there's an injury, he could get a call up, but I don't think he's going to make the initial 15 man roster just because of the way the, the style of that position is already stacked uh, talent wise for the jazz. Now you're not wrong. However, I know you don't follow any NBA team except for the Knicks. But there's rumors around the Jazz wanting to get rid of Gobert's contract. He's up for a new contract, and they're thinking about moving him in some way. Uh, I've never been an Azebuke fan, and that might not be fair to the kid's skill set. I just remember Angel Delgado handing him his lunch all day long in the NCAA tournament. Does that mean Roe Gill gets a shot in here? Mm, it's going to be tough. But Roe getting a contract. Go to the G League, make some money, build your skill set up. And if it doesn't work out there, he's got an overseas deal. Here, here's the takeaway. You did get exposure at Seton Hall. I don't want to hear that you can't get noticed playing at Seton Hall. Here's a guy who was under the radar, Juco player. I'm going to say it one last time. We thought he was five fouls. And then two years later, he's playing at a high level in the Big East and he got noticed. So you can come to Seton Hall, you can develop, and you can still get on the radar of NBA execs. It's just a tough position, the traditional five, to get noticed in the NBA and be at the age of row, which is 26. But he's still got an opportunity. And, and that's what Seton Hall can kind of package to their recruits is, hey, you can have an opportunity. Look at Romaro Gill. He kind of got drafted slash an NBA opportunity after he graduated. That's a success story. That's a huge success story. I mean, it, it's almost Cinderella, to be honest with you. I mean, again, Ro, we're sorry. We're sorry we ever said you were five pals. What a development. All right, Tommy, this this next piece of the agenda, I'm I'm, I'm out of my chair right now. You, you want me to get excited, like at the beginning of the podcast? You got to put this topic at the top of the list, and, and we'll start from there. My boy. I'm just, wondering, I'm just wondering, Mikey, just to cut you off, if you want me to go fold my laundry so you could just do this entire section yourself, Mike. It, it's Miles Powell, and it's the New York Knicks. Go fold the laundry. I'm good. I'm, oh, I got this. God I got this. Don't worry about it. Miles. So Miles Powell didn't get drafted. A lot of disappointment from the fan base. But, you know, once again, understanding that Miles 
is talented. He didn't get, get you know swept under the carpet. My Knicks swooped in, did the right thing, gave him an Exhibit 10 contract. I, I see maybe a two-way for Miles, but he's going to get his opportunity. And here, here's what I want to You don't know the Knicks, Tommy. I know my Knicks. I know they've been the dregs of the NBA, as you want to tell me, forever. But, but let's talk about a little bit about Knicks roster to kind of just paint the picture to see if Miles really has a chance relative to what we just did with Rowe at Utah. The minute that Miles was signed, the news broke on ESPN. The Knicks had purged their roster. And I don't mean like drop a couple guys or two. They waived or declined options on a total of six players. Taj Gibson, Wayne Ellington, Alfred Payton, Kenny Wooten, who was a two-way contract, and declined the options on Theo Pinson and Bobby Portis. That's six guys off the 15-man roster right there. That's crazy. And then, you know, they brought in a couple other pieces. So currently they have 13 players under contract, which includes their two first-round draft picks, and also leaves in the guard category players like R.J. Barrett, who's probably more of a prototypical small forward, but some websites you're going to see him listed as a two-guard. You have Damian Dotson, who was drafted in the second round a couple of years back. They just signed Alex Burke, a, a shooting guard, the other night. You got Frank Edelakina at the point, Dennis Smith Jr. at the point. You got Emmanuel Quickly, who just got drafted in the first round. Not sure where he fits as a point or a two guard. And then you got Jared Harper, a point guard on a two-way contract. There is a ton of youth there. There is a lot of players that the Knicks are not committed to or possibly even have one foot out the door as they've already been a part of their organization for two or three years. And we're not seeing the upside for those guys. Miles should have a shot. I'm not saying he's getting in the starting rotation or he's even going to be in the rotation, but there's not a list of names here where you're like, oh, he's buried two or three guys deep and he's got no shot to get any run. There's got to be a little bit of excitement there. Oh, Mike, I look at this like I looked at the draft night. There's the emotional, and then there's the logical. And there was a whole lot of emotional on draft night. But let's look at the emotional response to everything you just said. Mike, he's going to play home games at the Garden. And he's had humongous success. Earlier this week, there was a, a, a Twitter question that came out and said, what was the most impressive Miles Powell performance? And to me, bar none, it's that 29 points he dropped in the first half against Georgetown in the Big East tournament. I mean, I thought he was going for 50. I'm texting you saying, Mike, he's going 50. Oh, my God. Look at him. Could, and of could course, he have just thrown darts, though, and been happy with any one of them? St. John's, Kentucky. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Without a, oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. But that, to me, was like, oh, there goes that bad man. He stays at home. He's a Jersey kid. He's going across the, the river and he's going to be playing for the Knicks. That's great. The local fans who normally stay in that tri-state area can now go to the garden roof for him. It's going to be, it's going to be great. More Knicks fans coming back to the garden, baby. More Knicks fans coming back to the garden. <laughs> but let's have an important fact. Him and Obi Tobin actually have the same agent and they've been training together. So there's a familiarity there. And like you mentioned, the Knicks basically released three quarters of their roster. And what's well, they should have. And well, they should have. The roster was trash. The Knicks are trash, Mike. The Knicks have been trash forever. (laughs) I'm not not defending the Knicks that are good. I I give you stories from the glory days of the 90s. I never say, hey, my Knicks, watch out for my Knicks this year. Come on. Anyhow, (laughs) all these 
are emotional responses and emotions are for children. Let's look at the logical. The Knicks don't have any shooters. I don't know if the Knicks have had shooters for 10, 15 years. Like you mentioned earlier, R.J. Barrett is really a small forward, and they don't have a lot of depth at the two-guard position. There are plenty of roster spots open right now. However, all those roster moves gave them a lot of salary cap space. And if you don't think Tibbs isn't looking at and saying, we need to sign some players, you're crazy. And I'll tell you right now, if they find a way to bring uh, Westbrook over, just shoot me now, and you know, then I'll change my entire prognosis of Miles getting shots because that guy's a black hole. Oh, my oh I love Westbrook, but that's I know you do. Point. I know you do. And I, for I, 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 the eightieth, and for about the eightieth or so straight year, the Knicks are rebuilding. They're a bad team, so he's got a better shot to get some run here. Now, do I think he's going to make it? I think he makes a roster spot here. They're not going to be very good this year. And why not keep a guy like Miles Powell on the roster? I think it's a good spot for him. Now, the history of New York Knicks ruining talented young men is still there. I don't care what's going to happen about who the GM is, who the coach is. You still got that owner at the top. That ruins everything. So it's going to be an uphill climb for Miles. I think I think I've already had my fill of talking about the Knicks on this on this podcast. I thought I was going to be all into it. I'm I'm done. They stink. They stink. I'm just excited that Miles is going to be playing for my team. I'm glad that Miles is going to fit into a situation that might give him a chance to get some playing time and prove everybody wrong. But Tommy, we we got to talk about what all the fans are complaining about. So I mean, just. Go, you, you take it. You take this. Well, 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 you know, I found it really funny with all this complaints and all this emotion that was popping out. It's almost like folks haven't watched the NBA before or how it works. And if people didn't already hate me for my Sandro take, people are going to really hate me for what I'm about to say. Now, let me just preface it. I love Miles Powell. I just, like love Sandro, to... just like you love Sandro from the last episode. <laughs> John, Johnny Wait, gave it to you pretty good. I went back and listened, Tommy. John, Johnny gave it to you pretty good. You're like, I love Sandro. He's like, no, you don't. Like, I do no, love Sandro. I do love Sandro. But I have loved Miles Powell since the first time I saw him play. What's the first thing I said to you the first time I saw him play, Mike? You said, watch out Terry DeHare after he dropped that 26 against Iowa. Miles Powell's coming to town. Mike, I even flew out to New Jersey to see senior night in person because there was no way I was going to have four years go by of Miles Powell without seeing him in person. But how many times have we seen skill sets and physical attributes not translate into the next level? I mean, I am definitely rooting for Miles to have success. But let's take a look at what the tail of the tape says. He is a six foot two shooting guard. And that is undersized for that position at the NBA level. History tells us that this doesn't work in the NBA. In 1992, Miles would have been a lottery pick. Terry DeHare, after his wonderful career at Seton Hall, 
I believe, got picked 13th by the Los Angeles Clippers. And he went on to have about a six-year career. But after his second or third year, it was all in decline. It just doesn't work out at that size. His handle is good for the two. But they're not switching him over to the point guard position. He is not a one. He's not going to be breaking down guys one-on-one in the NBA. It's just not in his skill set. And to be honest with you, he didn't develop down this senior year either. On the defensive side, he's an average defender at best. He'll get a block here or there. He'll, he'll get a steal here or there. But he's just not that uber-physical, uber-athletic defender that the NBA seems to have. While we say his three-point shooting was his bread and butter, he was actually kind of inconsistent. He was only 34% for his career. His best year was his sophomore year when he got up to 37%. So he's more of a shot maker. He's more of a scorer than he is a true shooter. So now that I've run down my man, Miles Powell, I'm going to hear the other side from you, and I know you're going to destroy me. No, 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 no. I, uh, I keep, I, I'm agreeing with you. But the, once again, we have to kind of preface this and go back to what we're talking about here. This is not a tale of the tape for you to say why Miles is not going to be successful in the NBA. That, that is not what we're doing here. We are saying, why were the fans complaining about the fact that Miles wasn't getting drafted? When you take that tale of the tape and present it to the GMs, you just gave four categories from a measurable perspective. And that's just, that's just the way the NBA draft works, that he does not check the box in those four categories. So other players were going to get taken ahead of him or listed ahead of him on certain GMs, you know, draft board because of these attributes. That's just the way the draft works. That does not mean that he can't be successful as a basketball player. It it just doesn't. So I I actually agree with you. The one bullet point that I wanted to kind of expound upon that you brought up was him being an average defender. And some people are going to make the argument that Kevin Willard told him to take it easy on the defensive end. So he didn't burn himself out, you know, playing offense because we needed to have the team centric around him. And he was getting games where he was kind of, you know, wearing down uh, late in the second half and you just couldn't lose his legs. Did Tyshawn Alexander do that while leading Creighton and finishing third in the Big East ring? Was he also not a lockdown defender on the other side of the court? Uh, am, am I wrong, Tom? No, you're not why, wrong, why is there but a that's in his skill set. You know, and it, to be honest with you, it was more surprising to see guys like a Tyshawn Alexander not get drafted. I mean, he ticks off the boxes for the NBA, what the NBA GMs look for. Well, and I think that's why he got a two-way contract, right? So you continue to, you know, stack the list and say, why did guys get a Zipper 10s? Why did guys get two ways? Why did certain guys get picked? Once again, let, let's go break down this draft in a little more depth. I want to kind of focus in on the second round because I read a lot of things out there. Who the heck is that guy that they just announced in the second round? How do they not pick him against Miles Powell? First team All-American. I mean, come on, folks. All right, let, let's break it down for a second. There were nine shooting guards drafted in the second round. Elijah Hughes out of Syracuse, six foot six. CJ Ellaby out of Washington State, six foot six. Isaiah Joe out of Arkansas, 6'5". Skyler Mays, LSU, 6'4". Justin Jessup, Boise State, 6'7". Cassius Stanley, Duke, 6'6". Jay Scrub, uh, not for college, 6'5". Jalen Harris, Nevada, 6'5". And Sam Merrill out of Utah State, 6'5". as well. Tommy, 6'2". 
I mentioned one guy at 6'4". Everybody else was 6'5 to 6'7". In the NBA, three inches on getting your jump shot off is night and day. He just, he didn't meet the measurables of some of these other guys that were drafted. You cannot argue the fact, folks, that he is 6'2", and these other guys were not. And then we went through the five European guys that were taken from the 23rd pick on in this draft. And everyone's like, once again, who the heck are these guys? It's a great opportunity for the team to draft a player from Europe and stash their rights to bring them to the NBA later on. It's almost kind of like a minor league system where you can let that player continue to develop on that pro team in Europe where they're comfortable, uh, you know, where they're familiar and you don't have to waste a two-way contract. You don't have to waste a spot on your G League roster or even on your man roster with a first-round draft pick. You can let that guy sit there and develop. Miles was not going to be stashed on a Euro roster. And then let's talk about age because that sometimes gets lost. I understand it's a couple years difference, but it makes a big deal. 29 out of the 60 picks in the draft were 19 to 20 years old and were just finishing their first year in college basketball. 68% of them that were drafted in the entire gambit of the draft, underclassmen. When you talk about a player who develops and they get past those first two or three years in the league and they're projecting for their next contract, you want to have potentially another decade of that player in their prime if you hit a home run. Let's be honest. Take, take a player like Roe. If, if the Jazz hit on something and Roe all of a sudden in two years is like, wow, you know, Roe, they got something here. Roe's 28. Roe's on the back half of his career already in terms of NBA age productivity. And Miles is already, you know, four years in college, going to be 23. He, he's already a couple years ahead of these guys. It just matters, folks. The draft is based on measurables and ceiling. The draft is not based on intangibles. Intangibles means you get an opportunity and Miles is getting an opportunity. He clearly has heart, commitment, work ethic, character. He can handle the big moment. He can hit the big shot. And because of all those things, the Knicks gave him a contract. They gave him an opportunity. But any player of Miles' draft profile doesn't have a team use their draft capital to make a selection on that kind of player. It's just not the way that the draft goes. So we're hopeful, and we were hopeful, that he was going to get drafted. And we're hopeful that it's going to work out. And it would have been a great story if he got drafted last night. Our guy up on the big board. But we should not be shocked that he wasn't. Well, well, Mike, go. he was also projected to go like in the mid-50s. And there's only 60 draft picks. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's, yeah. that's hit or miss stuff. I mean, I think no, you know, but what I'm is, saying is hey, you shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't come out. I mean, it's not like he had projected uh, a 28th pick and then didn't get picked at all. That's amazing that, that you'd scratch your head with that. But he's tr- projected to be a 55th pick and he doesn't make it. That that's like okay, you know what? We're moving on. How about this? How about how about we move on and we end it with now, Miles? Go prove them all wrong, okay? Make us proud and go prove them all wrong. Be a Fred Van Vliet. Be one of these under. Uh, be one of these undrafted guys that all of a sudden just goes on and has a fantastic NBA career. We are clearly still rooting for you. I think Tom and I just took a little issue with all the the whining and complaining about why he didn't get drafted. And, and we needed to kind of cover it for a couple minutes. I, I don't even like that you brought up uh, Fred Van Fleet 
because he's not of the same skill set. He's not the same player type. Fred is a point guard. Miles is not a point guard. Miles has got a lot of things stacked against him at this point. Well, you don't want to let this topic go. All right, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. You, you alluded to it earlier. Miles is not a point guard, right? So there are very, you tried to do some research and find six, two and under shooting guards that have had successful careers. And you shot me a list of like three names out of oh, like man, the last it was decade. Tough. It was tough. So, so Miles was supposed to come back to Seton Hall for his senior season, take the feedback from the NBA and the combine. And what was he supposed to work on, Tommy? He was supposed to work on becoming that lead guard, that guy that could drive the offense. And didn't Kevin Willard say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get Miles ready for the NBA. We're so happy that he came back. We're going to put Miles in that position to succeed. How much lead guard did Miles truly play last year? You know, not a whole lot. There were spots where Quincy kind of rolled over into more of a shooting guard position. But you know what? Maybe it was just the opportunity wasn't there because Quincy played so well. Quincy played over his head last year. Don't get me wrong. I didn't want Miles to come back and play lead guard. I wanted Miles to come back and do exactly what he did off of screens, in transition, run the offensive sets for him. Kevin used him the way that he should have been used to dominate the college game and give us a very successful season. Uh, could he have been more successful playing the lead guard? I, I don't know, but he did not spend a whole season developing that skill set on the court against live competition. And once again, therefore, the draft executives, without having the combine this year, without having the individual workouts due to COVID-19, that hurt Miles. Because what's on tape is him coming off double pin down screens, fading away, banging threes in the eye of Michigan State. That didn't look like point guard play to me. I loved it. We all loved it. But that wasn't the tape that he needed to show the NBA execs. So, so Mike, you mentioned I did some research about seeing what kind of NBA players played the two at shorter heights. And I'll tell you, the list was very short as far as successful guards. And successful, I mean, that's a subjective term itself. We came up with Leandro Barbosa, who was a speed demon. He was like 6'3", and he kind of played the point shooting guard combo. You had Monte Ellis, who was another speed freak. And the more recent guy was Eric Gordon. But let, but Eric Gordon is full 6-4, and Eric Gordon came in and scored 20 points a game at Indiana in his freshman year. And so he was super stud right away. And he's a different body type, too. He is wide, he is strong, and he makes up for some of that hype by being strong. I don't get it, Tommy. You yell at me because these episodes go an hour plus, and you just won't let this topic go, man. Let's move on, buddy. Let's move on. Uh, we, we're rooting for Miles. Uh, well, we're, you know, you're we're, we're behind him, man. Like we're you behind were him. Such a good time, Mike. And now we got to bring you down <laughs> because we got to talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the corner, COVID 19. Now, the NCAA announced that they plan to hold the NCAA tournament at one central location in Indianapolis. It's not going to be a bubble. It's just going to be one geographic site. Now, Val Ackerman announced that the bubble idea for the Big East play is still on the table. I don't see how the, the poor Catholic universities are going to be able to pay for this, but whatever. It's going to be more likely in the February time frame. Hopefully, when the students get back on campus, we're also talking about more league games prior to December 11th if teams lose non-conference games to COVID. So, Mikey, 
You wanted more planning. You wanted that answer. Does this make you feel any better? Oh, the eyes are rolling in the back of my head right now at you, Tommy. No, no, this does not make me feel better. It's not even close. DePaul paused their, their play or their season on November 19th. First three games canceled. Creighton paused due to COVID-19 also November 19th. They're out of the crossover classic in South Dakota. The women's team just shut down. That, that, so that's not encouraging. They're all on the same on the same campus. They're shut down. First three games canceled. And then Kevin Willard declines to comment on when the team would come out of quarantine. What the heck is up with that? It's You either have a definitive date that you're coming back to play or you don't. We're going to transition into the Louisville preview. And you're not even going to tell me as the head coach that we're going to come back and start practicing on a certain date. How does this surprise you, Mike? Last year, Miles Powell had two serious injuries. He twisted that ankle and he had a concussion later on. Let's talk about the ankle. Oh, we're going to have to amputate. He's never going to walk again. He's never going to play the same way again. And what happens? First game out of the shoot, 37 points against Michigan State. That's not the then point. He, wait, wait, don't interrupt me. He comes back from the concussion. Oh, we're going to take this slow. We're going to see how he does. Boom. Comes in against the pole and just annihilates him. So, so, so now, you're, now you're treating the coronavirus. You're treating the coronavirus like a sprained ankle now. Come you're on. You're expect no. I, I am treating Ke- Kevin Willard in the same manner that he dealt with us last year. He's not going to show his cards, Mike. I don't care how many podcasts okay. he goes on. I don't care how many questions he answers. He's not going to show his hand. It doesn't change the fact that more teams are shutting down. Games are getting canceled. Kevin's ducking questions. You want? There's more doubt. And uncertainty. Tommy, please explain to Eeyore over here how things are going to get better. Show me the silver lining right now. Mike, six days. The team is going to tip off against Louisville. There's your silver lining, Mike. They're coming down there. Personally, do I think it's going to happen? I don't know how it's going to happen. They're supposed to go in a 14-day quarantine and then supposedly some seven-day uh, reacclimation period. That puts us past Louisville. I actually think that puts us past uh, Baylor as well. But until they cancel it, Mike, I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer. I'm just going to say, let's get ready for Louisville. And, yo, this is a huge game, Mike. We're always complaining about these cupcakes that they're coming up against. And we're going to get you. And we're going up against Louisville first game. All right, let, let's break down some football. Let, go ahead. Let, let, let's start it up. All right, so Louisville had a great season last year. They came in second in the ACC, uh, 24-7, and 15-5 in conference. They're coached by Chris Mack, who Seton Hall knows very well from his time at Xavier. This year, they're picked to finish fifth in the conference. In the Associated Press polls, they're in about 31st place. They re- they're in that also-receiving-votes bubble. Now, they've lost some key guys, potentially the best shooter in college basketball last year, Jordan Nawara. He left early. He got drafted in the second round, as well as four other seniors graduated last year. In all, these guys contributed to about 51 points per game or 68% of the team scoring from last year. Now, to start off the season, they've got some key injuries. Malik Williams, senior captain who plays center, 
He's their leading returning scorer and rebounder. He's out 12 weeks with a foot injury. In addition to that, Charles Midland, grad transfer guard. He's out six weeks with a knee injury. Tommy, it sounds like you should have gave you should have gave me that section. I'm I'm the Debbie Downer guy. You just listed all the guys who walked out the door. <laughs> this is Debbie out the door. Downer for Louisville, Mike. This isn't Debbie Downer for us. And, and then on top of that, on top of that, after all these guys leave, you're giving me two of their key players that are already out for the season. You should, you should be raising the Jolly Roger already, shouldn't we? <laughs> well, here's my Debbie Downer position. They've got some key returning players. They've got three really talented sophomores. They've got David Johnson, Samuel Williamson, and Aiden Ajean coming back, in addition to senior guard Darius Perry. So they return only about 30 total games of starting experience from last year, but they're not without talent. They've also got let's, some let's, key let's, new hang on, Before you move on, Tommy, let, let's, let's talk about those three guys. I, I think you're underselling these talented sophomores. They are three sophomores that were all – big time recruits all ranked in the top 100 in the 2019 recruiting class. Johnson was 79th. Williams was 20th and Aegean is 47th. And these guys got some size. Johnson's a point guard at six, five Williamson's a, a uh, athletic six, seven, small forward. And Aegean's a six, 10 center. I mean, the, Chris Mack put together a centerpiece of a class and these guys, if you look them up on their roster last year, their numbers don't pop off the page because you mentioned it. There were five guys that were upperclassmen on last year's roster. They were kind of just blocked by so so better senior players that just were going to kind of you know limit their minutes. Now they're going to get a chance to shine. And on top of that, we talked about Bryce Aiken coming in as one of the best transfers in the entire country, and they got one of the best transfers as well in Carly Jones. I think he's a shooting guard, grad transfer out of Radford. He was the 2019 Big South Player of the Year. He averaged 20 points a game, five boards, five assists, a steal and a half. This guy can play. He was going to be in their starting rotation regardless of the other injuries that took place around him. And then on top of that, they also brought in another four-star kid, DeAndre Davis, for the class of 2020. And they have a redshirt sophomore at power forward and Jalen Withers, who's going to now get a chance to step up and play. This team is not devoid of talent. They're just going to have a similar situation to us where they got a lot of new pieces and they don't know how they fit yet. Well, and Chris Mack is a heck of a coach. If anyone's going to figure it out, it's going to be him. So Mike, I'm going to ask you with all that, what do you think is going to happen if this game plays? Look, I, I think the pirates have a chance to steal a quality road win here early in the season. I mean, we talked about, the injuries that they have, they lost their centerpiece guy in Malik Williams, who was going to be their senior captain in the middle. So their front court, we mentioned the Gian, but you know, he, he didn't get a lot of minutes last year. He's still very raw. Their front court is very suspect. And this goes back to where our strength could be. Jared Roden, Sandro Mamukelashvili, Tyree Samuel, Ike Obiagu. Our front court could be a strength here, and this is where Louisville is going to have to try to find themselves. I mean, we talked about Seton Hall potentially being rusty coming out for their first game, and Louisville is going to have one game under their belt. But does one game really make up that big of a difference when we're talking about these guys really not having playing, played any significant or almost like an eight-month stretch right now? I, I don't think it does. So I'm going to go with experience over youth. And the combination of Aiken, Sandro, and seven total upperclassmen, and the Pirates are going to come out of the Yum Center with an opening night victory. 
I like hearing that, Mike, but I'm going to tell you this. I don't know that the Pirates win this game. And I'm just going to go to the math. The Pirates stop all basketball-related activities on the 9th. You had 14 days to that in their quarantine period, and you've got the 23rd. That means they've got the 24th, the 25th, and the 26th to potentially reacclimate themselves to basketball. And then let's just say they travel on the 27th. Sure. That's three days sure. of practice versus Louisville, who not only has had a game, who's actually been practicing before that. I think this is going to be a tough game. I think the Pirates acquit themselves well, just for the same reasons you brought up that you think they're going to win. But I think this is a loss. It's a toss-up game, right? They're all in that same potential talent bucket. We're projected in the top 40. They're projected right on the fringe of being top 30. It, it should be a good game. There's just a lot of variables, and it's just, just going to play into the 2020 narrative of we don't know. It's, it's going to be a crazy ride, and this game could go either way, but I'm going to bleed blue here. I'm, I'm going I'm to put on my blue-colored glasses. I kind of feel like they need to get this one because as we start previewing the upcoming game following, assuming that both of these games take place, you lose the game at Louisville hypothetically, and then you come back and play number two Baylor at your place. Man, that's tough. That is tough. It'd be nice to have that first win under your belt and kind of play with a little bit of house money in that Baylor game. Oh, I don't think you're wrong, but we'll see what happens. So, Mike, you did mention the upcoming Baylor game, and this is what we're going to do just because you don't feel like the games are going to get played anyway or you're not feeling comfortable about this. We're going to have a special Behind Enemy Lines episode later in the week where we're going to bring on John Werner, who is a sports writer for the Waco Tribune Herald, and he covers the Baylor Bears, and he's going to give us an inside scoop of what we could expect from Baylor. By the time we release the Behind Enemy Lines, we're going to have one game under our belt. According to you, we're going to be 1-0, and and we're just going to be screaming about the Pirates, Mike. Well, we're going to interview John prior to both the Louisville and Baylor game taking place. So I'm going, I'm going into the interview with John Assuming we're one and oh, you you can play all the hypotheticals you want. I'm rolling into the interview with John, going, "Hey, John, we're coming off a big win against Louisville. How, how does this game look?" I love it. Listen to the positivity from you, Mike. It only took me 50 minutes or so to get it out of you. We're close. We're close. It's getting there. You know, it's about an hour later. We're that much closer to tip off. I'm feeling the juices flowing a little bit. We're getting there. Oh, Tommy, I still got to see the ball go up. Hey, man, I'm just happy you're excited. Juice is flowing. And you know what happens when the juices get flowing? We say one thing. Go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 